I'll be preaching from James chapter 5. If you want to open up your Bible to James. If you don't have a Bible, you can go to the one that's in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, just take that one. I would love for you to just keep that Bible. It's on page 1013 if you are using one of them. A few Bibles on the, in front of you. But we're in the book of James in the New Testament, chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. You can keep your Bible open, but I do have to just give some context. The title of the sermon is Oaths and Honesty. Quite frankly, we do not see much honesty in this world. Our society is like living in a sea of deception. We scarcely know what truth is. From our day-to-day conversations to some of the most solemn pledges where God's name is invoked, Blatant liars use God's name to promote their truthfulness or untruthfulness. Liars actually don't even need to make an oath to lie. I have a few examples of liars, just to remind us. P.T. Parnum uh, had a circus, a circus of frauds. And if you had the unfortunate event of going to one of those, if you're older, uh, basically he had uh, characters like Tom Thumb and Siamese Twins that uh, would promote some weird and wacky thing. But, if, but what he was actually doing was lying. He was deceiving you and taking all your money. There's a guy by the name of Charles Ponzi, an Irish, uh, uh, an, sorry, an Italian immigrant, who basically made all of his money by lying to everyone. His lies and deceptions were so good that the government actually named a fraud after him the Ponzi scheme. Adolf Hitler, he's the poster boy of lies. His Nazi propaganda and fear that he induced on others, it was hatred and portrayal of the Jewish people who should have been hated by all society. And he used coercion and lies and manipulation to basically brainwash people into believing his lies. The consequences led to 17.6 million deaths and the genocide of 6 million Jews. 
That's the gravity of lies. Lies and dishonesty are all too familiar to us, whether we've been lied to or when we have lied to others. Dishonesty is a big problem. That's what's in our hearts. Matthew 15, 8 tells us what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. We have been desensitized to true honesty, and, and we need a wake-up call. And we, need, we, we basically we vote liars into office and have leniency for political lies when those that are in office share a specific stance that is morally aligned to ours. In order to win elections, politicians feel the need to lie. Enter our last example of liars, George Santos. He made up his entire biography and boldly amplified his lies while campaigning to represent New York's third congressional district. He's lied so much, he doesn't even know his real name. We don't know if he's Catholic or Jewish. One thing I do know is this guy is a liar. I've read that there's a dopamine rush to the brain when one gets away with a lie, and a lot of people are addicted to lying. For George Santos, he still thinks he's the best candidate for the job. He describes his lying as mere embellishments. Now, Santos might be an exception to the rule of how many lies a politician can get away with, but lying seems to be acceptable in this day and age. And with so many liars defending themselves, truth suffers. And this is the world we live in. Psalm 5, 4 tells us that there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. The sad reality is that our true untruthfulness reveals our condition. And Romans 3 tells us that there's no one good. No, not one. No one had to teach us how to lie. No one has to tell us how to be deceptive. We live in a system of lies. We live in a world of lies, and we are liars too. We follow the father of lies. James is telling us it does not have to be that way. We do not have to be that way. We have been brought to life by the word of truth, and therefore we ought to be truth tellers, plain and simple. So if we've been brought, to, brought forth by the word of life, we need to find our answers in the Bible, and so hopefully... You have your Bible still open to James. You have an outline, oaths and honesty. Uh, oaths is what I'm going to be talking about first, but I got to give you some context. I got to give you a little background. And so let me bore you a little bit more with some background about this book, this letter that we have before us. It is written to those who have been dispersed, Christians who were dispersed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they need a reminder that God has gathered the 12 tribes. You, you see that in the beginning, the opening verses of the, of the book, that God has gathered his people to him. And God has promised the crown of life to those who love him. They live in difficult situations. They have unbelievers around them. And they basically lived in this culture, this culture outside of their homeland for generations. They were forced to move away from the familiar to unfamiliar. They had many trials. They had it real bad as refugees. And this letter is intended to remind them that they have 
grace that is way more important than their trials, their suffering. Throughout this letter, we're reminded of what faith looks like. It looks like, well, it looks like this. It works. Real faith works. We are going to struggle with our tongue more than any other, play, any other part of our body. We, we will eventually struggle with our tongue. But James is writing to suffering believers. I find it interesting that even though he's writing to suffering individuals, he is bringing up primarily what faith looks like in order to encourage them. It's just interesting. A real faith is a trust and a confidence in God. It's based on his character and his promises. Those promises are revealed in Scripture, which is true and right. Real faith works. It causes us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. It causes us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Real faith causes us to show partiality, uh, not show partiality, but to act as those have been bought by God's uh, precious blood, those who have been judged by the law of liberty. Real faith is alive and can be seen as we give gifts to people who need food and people who need clothing. But one of the loudest ways that faith can be seen is by our tongue. Oh, you may be able to put a bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder on a boat and control them. P.T. Barnum might be able to control monkeys and lions in a circus, but no person can control the tongue. However, if you have real faith, your tongue is beginning to or is on a trajectory of being controlled by the Spirit. It ought not to bless God in one sentence and curse others in the next. If you have wisdom from above, you will show your faith by good works and good conduct, meekness and wisdom. It will look like it's pure and peaceable, sensible, open to reason. It will be impartial and have good fruits and most importantly, it'll be sincere. And so that's the main word. If you don't remember anything else from this sermon, remember sincerity. Here's the catchphrase, the headline, be sincere because Jesus is your Savior. Here's the context of this short little passage that we have. Because James has been writing through the Holy Spirit's inspiration to the believers, and he's been giving clear directives. He broke character right at the beginning of this chapter, and he starts to talk to unbelievers. It's the only time he talks to unbelievers is right at the beginning of chapter 5. He talks about these rich landowners who have been stealing money to poor people and living self-indulgent lives. And he tells them their doom is coming, and it's kind of gruesome. And then he changes his uh, attention to the believers here in this section. The believers, his beloved brothers who were suffering. And he just tells them, be patient. Don't grumble. I wonder why he tells them not to grumble. Well, look at verse 9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. You see, there's going to be people who take advantage of you. You will suffer, but, but don't complain. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is right there. He is going to judge 
He's going to punish sin, but he's right there, and he's compassionate, and he's merciful. He's there for you, and he will judge soon enough all the sin that's around you. So do you see a direct connection to the verse I have here this morning? Verse 12 is, is what I'm going to be preaching on. Verse 12 says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other earth, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Very interesting. I wonder what the gospel connection is right there. But something very important to know is right directly after this is a call to prayer for those who are suffering. So it's, here's the flow. Christians are going to suffer persecution. They're going to suffer all kinds of trials. We're going to be prone to complain and be deceitful. We're going to complain and grumble against our brothers, but we're called to pray because there's great power in the prayer of a righteous person who has real faith. So much power that it'll cause you to count it joy when these trials are coming because Jesus is coming for you. These believers were in a foreign land for a long time, and they ended up making concessions. Uh, and and they, they were starting to do things they shouldn't have done. Like if you move to Allegheny County and you want to fit in, and so you go to the local restaurant and you order the special leeks and liver. You think, well, I'll fit in if I order that stuff. And then immediately after eating that, you say to yourself, why did I eat that garbage? Well, these believers were social outcasts, not fitting in because of who they believed in, God, and what they did and what they said to honor God. They just wanted to have some friends, and so they ate the liver and the leeks, and they swore to God it was the best meal they ever had. Well, all kidding aside, these believers were starting to act and say the same things that the unbelievers were saying all around them. They adopted the culture with its lies coming from the father of lies. They adopted this bizarre way of of making oaths and trying to prove their untruthfulness to be true by some higher power. We live in similar times. Similar times of subjective relativism that says my opinion is as good as your opinion and I need to embellish my truth so that my truth sounds better than your truth my way is better than yours because I can fluff it up with a whole bunch of extra words we add words to make our truth seem more truth than your truth here's a general rule of thumb you hear a lot of words from someone you can expect something is very fishy and it smells like garbage. Proverbs 10 tells us that when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Well, here we are. Verses 7 through 11, we're called to be patient through suffering. We're told not to grumble. We watch what we say, and James is getting ready to to land the plane, so to speak, in this letter, and he gives us a huge, emphatic statement. It packs a huge punch. And and James is pretty smart. You think there's all these random things, but James is really smart. He he gives these little, little things to keep meditating on. And as he's finishing, he gives a huge thing to meditate on. And I believe it's important enough. My whole sermon is on basically one verse. 
James has a knack of weaving theological truths over and over again until we get it in our head. He hammers it home. We tend to think of oaths as like some respectable sin. You know, it, it is expected. Our poli- we vote politicians in, right, that lie all the time. I mean, he's speaking of dishonest oaths and condemnation. I mean, that's a little much, isn't it? Like murder, stealing, sexual morality, those are big things. But a white lie or an embellishment, I mean, it seems a little bit dramatic, doesn't it? Well, we'll move on. I'll, we might talk about that a little bit later. We will. But the structure of this verse, verse 12, it's just like any other wisdom literature, like in Proverbs. It has two parts. It's contrasting elements that have a, a positive, a negative. And this one starts out with a negative and a positive, basically like Christian repentance, put off and put on. So he tells us what not to do, and then he tells us what to do. And so we are to examine our faith and see if it lines up with what James has been saying. And he says, my brothers. Man, I'm telling you, I looked, and he says this 15 times throughout the letter. He really connects with the believers here. He identifies with them. He knows he, too, needs to guard his tongue because he tells us you'd be perfect if you'd be able to control your tongue, and he can't either. As I preach, I'm thinking of how many times I need to repent, of how many times I embellish the truth, of how many times I actually lie, and I need need God's grace. I don't need an exit plan for my deception. I need the truth of the gospel to set me free. I don't need to embellish truth or embellish the, the truth of what I need to say. I just need to be straightforward. The words above all. This is, the, this is that uh, you know, huge statement, uh, this emphatic statement he says. It's like, like you would say this. Last month our kids left for college and we're telling them all sorts of important things. You know, like pack your clothes, get, get the parking pass, make sure you get your key, and don't forget all that. And then I had the, you know, Dad, here's the most important thing, right? No matter what, as soon as you get there, get your 1098 forms and send them back so I can claim you on your taxes. Like, that's the most important thing. But in a more spiritual way, a little bit more spiritual way, uh, James is telling them to watch out of what they say. Just to be straightforward. Don't embellish. It has to do with truth-telling and all that you say. And if you have real faith, you don't need oaths. Just pure honesty. So that's how I got the title. It's a little bit better than my other one. If you had the King James Version, you'd get this title. It'd be, Watch Me Whip, Watch Me Nay Nay. <laughs> Let your nay be nay. All right. So... Here's the outline. Oaths and honesty. Forgive me for that long introduction. Under oaths, there's three items. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So it'll be the good ones, the bad ones, and the ugly. Oaths. So what is an oath? It's a solemn call upon God to witness to the truth of what one says or to witness to one sincerely intends to do what he says. Swearing is not what you think it is. 
if you're going to refrain from profanity. You might want to use Ephesians 4.29 or Ephesians 5.4 for filthy talk and corrupt talk. Uh, however, though, um, you know, saying G's or gosh or OMG, right? The old timers, if you're old enough to remember this, they would call this minced oaths. So, I don't know, a little bit indirectly related, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about swearing to God, and that has three parts. You bind yourself to, get to something, and so here it is. Here's the three parts. You attest to the truth, you call upon God as your witness, and you call upon God to punish you if what you say is not true. That's what swearing is. That's what an oath is. Sounds impressive. Well, what about us? Well, some of you have heard the phrase, may God strike me dead, or cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? Did anybody remember the pinky promises that you used to make, right? Well, how, how does that relate to us, right? Um, here, here's some other statements. It doesn't even have to be formal like that. It can be informal, like you can count on it. Oh, 100%, you can trust me. Um, well, you can take it to the bank. I'm sure of this, right? And on and on, we say things to just embellish the truth, to make our truth sound more important. So here's some good oaths that we can think about. There's a time when an oath is necessary. The oath of office is pretty necessary, right? Our government has three branches, and they all have an oath before they enter into office. It's funny because they say, they start with, I swear, and then they say their oath, and then at the end, each one of them says, so help me God. There's a Hippocratic oath that doctors use, and then there's the oath that we all use when we go to court to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Hebrews 6 tells us of biblical, uh, a biblical truth, uh, the biblical oath that God has made, and it's talking about God's promise. It says, for when God had promised to Abraham, since there was no one greater to whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. I think that's a good oath. Maybe you like oath, uh, God's oath of not destroying the earth ever with a flood. Uh, how about in Luke about his oath to send a redeemer? You know, I didn't realize how many oaths were in the Bible. And if you've been attending this church for a few years or if you've listened to the sermons online, we've been in the books of Genesis and Exodus. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of oaths in, in these couple beginning chapters or beginning books of the Bible. Genesis 24, we learned of a, a weird way that Abraham made an oath to his servant regarding his thigh. For the details, ask Dave. You want more details on that? In Genesis 26, Isaac made an oath with Abimelech for peace. Chapter 31, Jacob made an oath with Laban just to leave him alone. And then just a couple weeks ago, we're in Exodus, and we're talking about case laws. And God calls for a vow between neighbors over a dead donkey or an ox just for the purposes of restitution. On and on, there's oaths that are recorded in the Bible. And there, there's men at solemn occasions in life that wanted to confirm their word. And so they invoked the name of God. Someone I know is getting ready to say marriage vows this year. So we know that making oaths are good. Here's some bad ones. Sometimes we make bad oaths. 
but God tells us we still need to keep them. Psalm 15, 4 says that we ought to keep our oaths. We need to honor God. And so by keeping our oaths, even when we swear by our own hurt, we must not change. Numbers 30, verse 2 tells us if a man vows a vow or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So you better not go back on your word or a handshake. In today's context, it might be paying your bills that you promised to pay back. It might be paying back that house loan on the promissory note that you signed. It may just be giving back the tool to your neighbor that you promised you'd give it back to him. Whatever you said you'd do, whatever you promised you would do, just do it, even if it hurts. There's some bad oaths in the Bible. Um, Jephthah swore an oath, and then he ended up having to kill his daughter. We were doing family devotions at the beginning of this week about John the Baptist, and uh, we remember King Herod made a, a real bad oath. He swore to his daughter anything she wanted, and she ended up wanting the head of John the Baptist. And so he felt the need that he had to follow through that oath. So there's some bad ones, but most vows are good. I think it's more of what James is saying. It's a failure to keep our vows that's bad. It's kind of like a, a car rental place when you go and rent a car and they don't, you take a reservation and then they, they don't have a car for you, right? They, they take the reservations. They just don't hold the reservation. It's just like when we take an oath, we need to hold the oath, right? The third commandment of taking the name of the Lord in vain is the same thing what you're doing when you make an oath and you don't follow through. And we were taught, as when Dave uh, preached on that several months ago, that's an erroneous endorsement, taking the Lord's name when you lie. You're basically saying, God's okay with my lying. Okay, so now these words, by heaven or by earth. I, I mean, they've been eating at you all day, right? You just don't, or at least the past half hour. And so it's a reference that comes from James's half-brother, Jesus. So I, I will have to ask you to not grumble or complain, but if you want to turn with me to chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, it's the first book of the gospel, uh, the gospels there, uh, New Testament. And we hear from Jesus himself as he's speaking on oaths. So... We'll be in Matthew just for a little bit. Maybe one more if I have the time. Matthew 5, verses 33. And Jesus spoke on oath, and he said this. He said, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath either by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. You see, their thinking was so perverted, it was this idea that if, it's, if God's name was invoked, 
and he was a partner in the transaction. But if God's name was not invoked, then God had nothing to do with it. And Jesus is saying, you bring God into that transaction when you bring anything that God owns into that transaction. God owns your mom's grave. He owns heaven. He owns earth. He owns your head. He owns everything. Nothing can be touched that doesn't belong to God. There's another passage, and it's in Matthew 23, and you don't have to turn there, but if you're, if you're feeling froggy, you can. But Matthew 23, and I don't want to make you flip all over the place, but Jesus is speaking to religious leaders in this next section. And he's talking to these religious leaders who made elaborate plan to break a vow. They basically just planned on breaking a vow because they said things like, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, then it means something. Or if you swear by the altar, it doesn't mean nothing. But if you swear by the gift that's in the altar, then it means something. Like, they're nuts, right? They're, they're just crazy. They, they made up their own law. Well, how does that relate to you and I? Well, I promise not to go past noon with this sermon, but I have a way out. I cross my finger, right? And I cross another one. That's a double whammy, right? But we, we do these things. We do the same thing. We, we, we're just, we're foolish. We're just like these religious leaders who have these wacko, elaborate plans to break a vow. Here's the last thing on that first topic, the ugly. And it reminds us of the ugliness of our heart. A good reference to use is Psalm 55, verses 20 and 21. It says this, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You see, the more, the more one passionately swears to the truth, it usually reveals their lack of it. Oaths are not going to change your heart. And the most revealing part of your body, as we've heard, is your tongue. It reveals what's in your heart. Our hearts are wicked and we need a savior. And even as born-again Christians, we fail to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, especially when I'm going through suffering. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, you did mean it. You said it. It's in your heart. We need to stop bearing witness to ourselves, because we're told that in John 5, 31, when we try to bear witness to ourselves. It is not true. Proverbs 14 tells us that a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. Friend, what do you breathe out? What comes out of your heart? Oh, I go to the gym four times a week. Oh, I read my Bible every day. Oh, I sold my house, and I want to give it away. I want to give all the proceeds to the church. Enter our example of Ananias and Sapphira. This infamous couple just had sold their property. They made some big money and they want to give some to the church. And they only told a little white lie of just how much they gave. Oh, I tell you, they gave a lot, mind you, but they just held back a little. 
The problem is they lied. Satan had filled their hearts. They could have done anything they wanted. They could have held back and just been truthful. But they wanted to look good. They wanted to show off. They wanted to whip and nae They wanted to do the Superman Christian dance. And they say, watch me, watch me, ooh, watch me, watch me. I'm giving away all this money. And Peter says, why have you done this? You have not lied to man, but to God. And they died right before everyone. Why? Because they together tested the spirit of the Lord. Are you testing God with your untruthfulness? Is what you put on the IRS forms true? When you're a child, if you're a child here, I know there are, when your parents tell you, when you do foolish things, do you tell them, oh, that's what everybody's doing? As a businessman, are you known for honesty? As an employee, do you give eight hours of work for eight hours pay? As a spouse, do you tell your other spouse the whole truth or just the convenient part of the truth? As a believer, is what you say lined up with your character? To unbelievers, when you speak to them, do they actually know you're speaking the truth? Jesus came to testify to the truth. He is truth personified. You can actually take what Jesus says to the bank because he is truthful all the time. And so here's our second half of the sermon. Honesty. Jesus, you see, lifted all conversation in the church to a level of sacredness. And in this heading, there's going to be three sections. It's the good, the rad, and the holy. Short for radical. The good, the rad, and the holy. Jesus tells us that everything I say out of my mouth should be a promise of truth that I'll never violate. It should have, I should have enough integrity that people, when they hear me say yes one time, they know I won't violate my word. Or if I say no one time, I won't go back on it. Should be simple, straightforward, honest speech. Can we speak the truth in every situation? Well, we should because that is going to set us apart from the world. The world system is built on lies and the church must be different. We must be different. Now, here's a side note. Sometimes it's okay to lie. Like when the Hebrew midwives were lying about the Hebrew women about their um, vigorous baby-making skills, right? That's okay. You're trying to save a life. World War II, they, the uh, military intelligence decided to uh, break a code, and so they sent out a deceptive message to the Japanese. They took it, and so it helped to win the war. Okay, there's some things like that. Maybe sometimes you need to fib a little bit to your lovely bride when they're they don't smell so good and they, they just don't look so good. Oh, you and give them a good hug. I love you. You smell good. You look great. Right? You could do that. But what we're talking about here is good honesty when the rubber meets the road. The good ones. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. We need a real faith in order to be faithfully speaking the truth 
not a one-time event to look good, to be noticed, but rather all the time. That's what delights the Lord. John 3, 18, little children, not love, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Ephesians 4.15 tells us not to get caught up in craftiness or schemes of this world, but rather speaking truth in love. So that we are grown up in every way, Christ is the head. Ephesians 4.25, therefore put away falsehood that we might speak truth to our neighbor because we're members of one another. You see there's indicatives in there, right? Christ is our head, we're members of one another. These propel us to be truthful. Even the armament that we have when we have spiritual battles is given by God. Ephesians 6 tells us, take up the whole armor of God, right? We put on the breastplate of truth. It's the first piece of spiritual equipment we put on. It's truth. And it's God's equipment for you. When we use oaths and embellishments to make us look better, we fall under condemnation. Instead, we ought to be honest and straightforward. Don't let people get the wrong idea. Some of you guys actually think I love sweets a lot. Now, I do. I, I love a good pecan pie. But I've incurred the consequences because every time there's leftovers of sweets, I get them. And my poor wife has to, like, shun me. She's like, tell people. So I'm telling you right now, I like sweets to an extent, but not really. I'd rather have a bag of chips or something, okay? So stop giving me the leftover pastries. They'll just go in the garbage. I'm sorry. I try a little bit. But I've given the wrong, you know, right? that's fun, but we, we give wrong impressions all over the place. We're actually worse than what we think. And yet we have everything we need for life and godliness. We call upon these punishments like stepping on your mom's grave and sticking a needle in your eye. It has, they don't have a candle at what God's going to do to people who actually lie and continue to lie. We're called to a radical truth, a radical truth that promotes truthfulness. A faith that works in a believer means that when we're under duress, in difficult situations, we are known to not be making up words. Faith works when the words come out of our mouth are such a way that it represents our character, represents who we long for. When we say yes or no, when we tell people something, when we make a commitment to do something, when we promise things to people, we do it. What about that statement, so that you may not fall under judgment? What does that mean? You said he's talking to believers. Well, yeah, he is. Here it is. Listen carefully. Don't continue to blaspheme God's name or you will be sentenced to God's eternal punishment. That's it. That's strong. That is a warning to you as a believer. If you continue to lie, you will find hell. But didn't I say it's to believers? Yeah, it is to believers. Maybe you need to do a heart check. Maybe you do some self-examination. Maybe you made a wrong vow of following the Lord with your, with your profession of faith. Maybe you need to look to Jesus. This is a warning to believers 
a testing of your faith. Yes, you may slip. I slip. But are you catching yourself? Are you hating the, the sin of deception that's in your heart? Are you longing to want to be truthful because the Lord is truthful and he's given you truth? Are you confessing it? Are you killing it with ongoing repentance? Run to Christ. This passage reminds me of, of, a, of a repentance plan. It's in Psalm 5. It goes like this. You destroy all of those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Ouch. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple. In fear of you, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make my way straight before you. That's a good prayer. For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear the guilt, O God. Make them fall down by their own counsels because of their abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Wow, that, that's still the prayer, but it sounds a little bit more aggressive. Saints, you have been given an abundance of God's love. Ask him to make your way straight if you've lied and you continue to find yourself wanting to lie. But do you agree with God's holiness so much that you would pray a prayer like this? Cast them out? That statement of self-destruction, it's not a side note. That's the narrative of those who are not in Christ. Destruction. And we've seen that over and over in James. The end is coming. Punishment's coming. He's standing at the door. Where are you? If you're in Christ, you have life, and you'll pursue life, and you'll pursue truth. That psalm goes on to say, but I will take refuge in you and rejoice. Let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them. Those that love your name exalt you, for you bless the righteous in the Lord. You cover them with favor as like a shield. Friends, you already have God's shield of protection over you. We do not need to embellish whatever lies that we have. Instead of lying, let us take refuge in Christ and sing for joy. We don't need to protect ourselves like Adam and Eve to embellish words and sound more plausible. We have the protection of God himself. He covers us as he does those who are wounded. He sets us free by those by his truth. Luke tells us that the good person, out of the goodness of his heart, produces good. The abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. What's in your heart? You cannot make yourself say the truth. You need Christ in you. This is a call to make your yes, yes, and no, no. It's radical. It is radical. This call is going to set us apart from the rest of the world. And we even get in trouble sometimes when we have to say the truth. We know that full well from people that we know that are in chains for the truth. But we are called to swear even to our own hurt. The problem is we do embellish the truth. It's not easy to tell the truth. And that story of Ananias and Sapphira, that really should shock us. 
It was a small infraction, but that's the call that God has given us. The church cannot prosper if there's deception among the members. Deception wounds the body of Christ. Radical truthfulness is needed. It's not enough just to not stop saying oaths and, 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 and stop lying. We must represent ourselves to who we truly are to others. We must actually start speaking the truth. We are sinners saved by grace, and now we agree with God's word and God's truth about our true condition, and we're actually worse than we think we are. We have no hope in ourselves, but our only hope is in Christ, and in him we are crucified. And it's in him all the promises of God have their yes in him, and that is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory who establishes us in Christ. He has anointed us. And he has put a seal on us and given us his spirit for a guarantee. Christ, you have, Christians, you have a guarantee of Christ in you and a guarantee of where your home is. Who is this Christ? He is the Holy One, the Holy. He is the one who speaks no lie ever. Psalm 143, the Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the one who fully spoke truth in love. He died so that you can now speak truth. He is the perfect truth teller. He died in place of liars like us. He fulfilled the law of righteousness. And now that righteousness becomes ours when we're united with him. Jesus frees the need for us to think we need to lie. And he begins that work in us, and he continues that work in us to make us like him. Sometimes people will find condemnation if they're lying and deceitful, and that is true. But if Christ is in you, you will be found in him. And that's my prayer that you will be found in Christ. Psalm 25, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. Do not add to its words or you will be found to be a liar. Friends, I want you to think of yourself as sojourners. You should not be fitting in in this culture because of who you believe in and what you obey, and that is the Lord. Whether you know it or not, all of you, all of me, we've all made concessions. We've made our yes a no and our no a yes, and we've try to prove ourselves and cover ourselves up with embellishments. No one knows the real you. You don't have to cover up with extra words. Jesus is all the truth that you need. You need to sing for joy because God has saved you. You should let people know that you are a sinner, but you are born again in Christ Jesus and you have hope in him. Jesus is your only hope. And if you have a real faith, you will strive to be honest. 
I'm going to call the worship team to come up, and I'm going to give you guys a, a couple points of application. Here's an important one. Do you want to be a good evangelist? Be honest. People will eagerly embrace believers when they just tell the truth. One, avoiding one small fib might be way more important than a confession of your faith with a lengthy, forceful discussion. Just, one, just avoiding one small fib. Here's a few ways to promote radical truthfulness. Be sensitive to the horror of deception in the body of Christ. Two, feed on the word of God because it sanctifies you. Three, be careful of what you say and be ready to correct yourself. If you've given the wrong impression, straighten it out. Four, stop excessive words. Just be straightforward. Five, don't worry about what people think. Worry about what God thinks of you. Read the book by Ed Welch, When God is Big and People are Small. Friends, as you wait patiently for God to judge the wicked and rescue people from oppression, know that for the Christian there is comfort because the Lord's coming, and for the wicked there's condemnation so that we can yet let our yes be yes and our no be no. Amen.